John 14, uh, from verse 15. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then turning over to chapter 16, chapter 16 from uh, partway through verse 4, the new paragraph there, still Jesus speaking, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. Father, we recognize that even as we turn now to consider the person of Your Holy Spirit and His work in the world and His work in our lives, we are utterly dependent upon Him to illumine these truths to us, to shed light upon them, and to work in our hearts to receive them, that we might understand, that we might know them to be true, that we might recognize these truths to be good and rejoice in them, and that we might trust in You and follow after your ways. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by uh, reading for you something that I read this week about the Holy Spirit in Christian experience. You may know spiritually confident Christians who seem to be on familiar terms with the Spirit, as if that Spirit is just in the next room, And they had a lovely visit together just a few minutes ago, exchanging words and affection. Then there are others for whom the Spirit is never mentioned. So baffling, so confusing, so perhaps unreal is this member of the Trinity. Maybe that rings true for you, whether uh, you tend to be puzzled by those who are so familiar with the Holy Spirit, or whether you tend to be frustrated by those who seem so disinterested in the Holy Spirit. Uh, So, what are we to do with Him? 
puzzle over him, argue over him, obsess with him and determine to understand everything about him, or maybe give up on the attempt and forget all about him. Well, the Apostles' Creed tells us what to do with the Holy Spirit. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. It's about as short a statement as it could have been, uh, but there's still just something refreshingly clear and bold about it. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, And my ambition this morning, my modest ambition this morning, is not to answer every question that we might have. That would be, uh, I reckon, about a 29-year series and I reckon we'd be pretty disappointed come the end of it if we expected it to answer every question we have. That's not what we're looking to do. But my ambition is that we'll get to the point where we're clear enough in our minds and in our hearts that we can say with conviction and with boldness and with thankfulness, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That name, the Holy Spirit, is intriguing in itself. The Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament and the Greek word for for spirit in the New Testament. Uh, These are both words which in ordinary usage have a double meaning. They mean, firstly, breath, uh, your breath, and they mean, secondly, the wind, Uh, which is interesting. Breath is the stuff of life. Your breath is the means by which you live, and your breathing is as close to you, as intimate and personal as it's possible to be. Uh, The wind is infamously impossible to grasp hold of. and might as well be chasing the wind, as we say. The wind at times rustles gently in the trees and caresses us with a pleasant coolness, and at other times it comes to us as tempest and hurricane with immense disruptive power. The one we're speaking of this morning is the Holy Spirit, the life-giving and intimate and gentle and powerful and elusive God. You can't pin Him down. The wind bloweth where it listeth, as the authorized version put it. The wind blows where it wants. This is Jesus speaking. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes, all of which suggests that, that to some extent there is a kind of deliberate elusiveness here, that perhaps we're not actually intended to probe too deeply or to focus too long on the Holy Spirit of God. And that in turn fits with what we know of the one who's been described by a number of theologians as the shy member of the Trinity. Uh, So yes, it's good to take time to consider the Bible's teaching about the Holy Spirit and to understand that teaching as deeply as we can, But, but we need to remember from the beginning as we do that that the Spirit Himself, His great desire is is not to point us to Himself, but to point us to Christ, and through Christ, to God the Father. There there is a reason. Um, If you you, you appreciated this before, often you get um, in the New Testament what, what you might call, what are sometimes called binatarian formulations. So, so, so something that's declared to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, where, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, it, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that this comes to us, and He impresses it upon us. And so, He Himself is wanting to put God the Father and God the Son center stage. In terms of how we're, we're going to look at this this morning, it's a, it's a huge topic. Um, 
The Bible uses various names to describe the Holy Spirit, and this morning we're going to use five of those names um, to draw out the main aspects of who He is and what He does. The first is that throughout the Bible, He is described most obviously and simply as the Spirit of God. And it's important to understand that phrase. It's not that to talk about God's Spirit is not a way of describing God acting in certain ways. It's not a way of describing the influence of God or the principles that God loves or the ethos of His teaching. It's not the Spirit of God in that sense. The Holy Spirit is genuinely and fully a person. That's why we refer to Him as Him and not as it. How would you like to be called it? Well, He doesn't either. Um, He is a person. He is the third member of the Trinity. He is God. Uh, And so, the first thing we need to be clear about is is that the one we're talking about here is the Spirit of God who reigns with the Father and the Son. He is God Almighty. All that God is, the Holy Spirit is. That means that He is gloriously, stupendously powerful. He acts with overwhelming and awesome uh, might and glory. There is no resisting Him. The wind blows where it pleases. The fact that the Spirit is God also means that He is perfectly gracious and loving. And the, the character of God, as we see it revealed in Scripture, most clearly seen in Jesus, is the character of the Holy Spirit. He is kind and merciful and gracious and patient and understanding. He is also all-knowing, all-wise, and His plans are perfect. The will and purpose of God the Father and God the Son is shared completely by God the Spirit. There is never the slightest disharmony of purpose between them. There's never a kind of conference room in heaven where they sit down and thrash things out and say, well, I think we could do this. No, I think we could do that. No, they have have one will, completely undivided, one purpose. The Holy Spirit, in the glory of His loving fellowship with the Father and the Son, is, like the Father and the Son, completely and supremely happy. Happy and holy. So, this is our starting point. The Holy Spirit is God, and He is not one-third of God. He is all of God, just as the Father is all of God, and the Son is all of God. Father, Son, and Spirit are so closely interwoven that that the language the Bible uses um, is, is fascinating. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit sometimes as the Spirit of God, sometimes as the Spirit of Jesus, sometimes as the Spirit of the Father. That's how That's how closely their uh, character and will are shared. And always they work together in this deepest of all mysteries, of course, one God, three persons. And in line with that, we see then, when we turn to our Bibles, we see the Holy Spirit at work throughout history, from hovering over the face of the waters when the world was first created, to making God's will known to people throughout the ages through prophets and through Scriptures, to empowering men and women for particular tasks, whether that's kings and judges of old or ordinary people in the Scriptures or ordinary people today. In a thousand ways, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the unfolding of God's purposes in the world. 
And so my, my point in all of this is just to make sure we're crystal clear from the beginning who we're dealing with here, that, that just as all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, so we must recognize that all the fullness of God dwells in the Holy Spirit. He's not an optional extra. He's certainly not an impersonal principle. He is God in all His glory, and He is worthy of our worship and adoration alongside the Father and the Son. We bow before Him. We worship and honor Him. We love Him and long for Him. And in this sense, that's the first and core sense in which we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Him as we believe in God because He is God. He is the Spirit of God who reigns with the Father and the Son. Here's a second name that the Spirit is given, and it's Jesus who gives it. He gives it in that part of the Bible that we read from earlier, John 14 and 15 and 16. At different points in these three chapters, He refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Why does He use that expression? Because the Holy Spirit brings to us what God wants us to know and reveals God to us. And so, here's our kind of second category. The second thing we need to know about who the Spirit is, what He does, uh, He is the Spirit of truth who reveals truth to us. He is the Spirit of truth who reveals truth to us. He's been doing that throughout history. Uh, It's the privilege and joy of the Holy Spirit to make God's ways known in the world and to act as revealer of God. Whenever the prophets spoke, it was the Spirit of truth who spoke through them. Remember what Peter says when he's speaking, this is Second Peter 1, speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures, he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. People don't, prophecy doesn't come from, from, from here, from this level. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the point of being carried by the Holy Spirit is that, is that when He carries you, He puts you down where He wants to put you down. And so the prophets all said what the Holy Spirit uh, wanted them to say. They, they were His instruments for revealing the truth that He was to bring to us. And then Jesus comes, and before He leaves the world, He says to His disciples, um, we read it earlier, Isn't this interesting? He's just about to be crucified, and he knows it, and he says, I still have many things to say to you. Isn't that fascinating? He knows that he's about to die. I I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the main way in which that promise was fulfilled was that the Holy Spirit then guided the apostles in the writing of the New Testament, as He had guided the prophets of old. So that what Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, applies to the whole Bible. All Scripture is, listen to the language, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for all kinds of things. That's significant, isn't it? Breathed out. That's the the breath, the Spirit of God bringing His truth to us, speaking the Word of God to the people of God. 
And that's why this is, this is absolutely the lifeblood of the church, the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God, and always both together, always, always. Please hear that, always both together. They can never be separated. Apart from the Spirit breathing out the Word afresh among men and women, the Bible will be what it is to so many people Dead letters on a page. You ever, you ever had that experience as a Christian? You know, just the frustration of that. Why, why can you not see in this what I see in this? Apart from the Spirit, it's just dead letters on a page. Apart from the Scriptures, once for all delivered to the saints, our ability to hear God's Spirit will be fatally undermined by sin. And, and that has caused havoc throughout the church. The Spirit works through the Word, not apart from it. Which is why, here are two principles. Never listen to anyone who tells you that the Holy Spirit is leading the church in a direction that goes against the Bible. It's a favorite tactic of those that want to be able to um, reject parts of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is now leading us in a different direction. He does not do that. He spoke this word. This is His word. So, never listen to anyone who does that, but the principle actually goes further. Never allow your conscience to be bound by someone telling you that the Holy Spirit requires something of you which simply isn't in the Bible doesn't have to contradict the Bible. It's just not there. Only what is in God's Word can bind the conscience of the Christian. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth bringing God's Word to us. And, and actually, the fact that He is the Spirit of truth also helps us to understand why He is the shy member of the Trinity, because the focus of the Bible is Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point, isn't it? And we don't worship a book. That's, that's, not the, that's not the point. The point, the Spirit takes the Word, and through Word and Spirit together, we're led to God through the Savior. That, that's the whole purpose of what's going on. And when, when we say that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, think, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the truth that He wants to make known to us. Capital T, truth. Jesus Himself the Spirit bringing Christ to us. And so, think, uh, think about the shape of the Gospels. Think about what's happening in the dynamic of the Gospels. Um, think about something like Matthew uh, 17, the transfiguration. If you remember that, Jesus transfigured, and a voice comes from heaven. And what does God the Father, what does He say? God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So, God the Father, it's like God the Father takes a great spotlight and trains it on Jesus and says, listen to Him. And then you read throughout the Gospels, and, and in one place after another after another, Jesus takes a great spotlight and fixes it on Himself and says, come to Me, listen to Me, trust in Me, come to know Me, follow Me. And all the time, well, the way that J.I. Packer puts it is that it's as if the Holy Spirit is just over our shoulder whispering to us, yes, 
Yes, go to him. Go to him. He is all important. Deal with him. That um, floodlight image is a, is a packer image. It's his favorite image for uh, describing the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a, a floodlight uh, designed to focus our attention on Jesus. When you go to a building that's floodlit, if it's, if it's well done, the, the floodlights, you can't even see them. Your focus is not on the floodlights. The floodlights serve to illuminate the building, and that's where you look. That's why the real sign that God's Spirit is present and powerful in the church is not that people are banging on about the Spirit. The real sign that God's Spirit is present and powerful in the church is that Christ is being exalted. He is being held on high, honored and glorified. Where He is seen for who He is, where, he, where, where the grace of His gospel is communicated with clarity and with power, where His call to repentance and faith is heard and heeded, where men and women are being transformed into His image, Christ is being formed in them, they're coming to look like Him where they're being shaped into a new community of mutual love and submission and service, and where through all of that, God is being glorified, that's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work. And it's the Spirit's greatest joy when we allow Him as the Spirit of truth to focus our attention on the one who is truth. Here's a third expression that's used uh, to describe the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to Him in Romans 8, as we read earlier, as the Spirit of life. Why? Because He is the giver of life, the giver of all life. And so, we profess faith in this… as we profess faith in this Holy Spirit, we're also saying that we love and trust Him as the Spirit of life who gives life to us. Spirit of light. So, we've seen there's a kind of progression here. I hope you can see it. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit makes truth known to us, and now, through that truth, He gives life to us. Again, there are connections just all the way through the Bible here. There are connections to Genesis. In chapter 2, God forms Adam from dust. What does He do? How does, how does the man Adam become a living creature, which is what it says? He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's what it says. Very specific. He breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and so uh, the man became a living creature. You could translate that, the breath of life, as the, the spirit of life. It's just a hint of the presence of the spirit in that work, but it's there, and it's part of a pattern that runs throughout the Bible. Whenever new life is given, the Spirit is present to give it. We, we've seen that recently. We, we had a couple of occasions uh, recently um, in the Creed and at Christmas there, uh, thinking about the, the virgin birth. We saw it, um, the pattern then. Just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness of the unformed creation in the beginning and became the power of creation and the giver of life. So, then He hovered over the darkness of Mary's womb, overshadowing her, and becoming the agent of creation of a new humanity within her. 
And so also, if you're a Christian, it's because at some point the Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness of your heart and formed life where there had been spiritual death. It was the Spirit of life who gave you life. And you see it really clearly in John 3. Um, Remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus? Um, Interestingly, he comes by night. He comes in the darkness. What does Jesus tell him he needs? Nicodemus, in your darkness, you need the Holy Spirit to hover over you and to bring you life. You need to be born again by the Spirit. What is born of the flesh, he says, is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you want to see the kingdom of God, he says, the only way that can happen is if the Spirit of life gives life to you. Because to paraphrase something that Luther once said, though Christ were given and crucified for us a thousand times over, it would all be in vain and for nothing unless the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, brought all the benefits and blessings of that gospel to us. Otherwise, it all remains outside of us and of no benefit to us. We must receive it, but here's the problem. We are those who are spiritually dead. We cannot receive it. And so, our only hope is that the Holy Spirit of God comes, hovers, gives life, so that we're able to receive what we previously could not receive. We we need to understand this. What Christ has won for us in the gospel is is limitless. It is breathtaking. It is breathtaking. But every single part of it can only be ours if the Holy Spirit brings it to us. In that sense, the whole gospel lies in His hands. Every benefit of of salvation, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, union with Christ, the whole nine yards, everything, can only be fulfilled in us and be made ours and be made real by the work of the Holy Spirit bringing life to us. But this is what He loves to do. It's a lovely kind of mutuality to it, if you like. The Spirit breathes out the Word so that the Word of the Gospel comes to us with the power of God. Now, as we've seen, that's not actually, astonishingly, not actually enough, because if we're dead, we can't receive it. So, as He breathes out the Word of God, He breathes into us to bring us alive and to give us new hearts and to open our ears that we might hear. So, he, he, he at one and the same time speaks the Word and gives to us the capacity to receive that Word. And in that sense, the, the whole of our salvation is, is of grace and of God. And, and whatever the conscious process, I mean, we could, we could go around this room and talk about how, how we came to faith, and, and there would be as many stories as there are people in the room But whatever the conscious process, the deepest reason anyone ever becomes a Christian is not because they finally figured out how the gospel makes sense of everything, or they finally achieved spiritual enlightenment, or they made a decision. At the deepest level, what is happening is that the Holy Spirit of God has come as the giver of life. It's part of what it means to say that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Because only by that means, only by this gracious, sovereign work of God, the breath of God blowing where it pleases, can Nicodemus be born again, or Lazarus rise from the dead, or any of us believe in Christ. And that's why people have those experiences. You've heard these experiences. The Bible was so boring to me. And then one day it came alive. Actually, it didn't. You came alive. The Spirit worked in you, and you came alive to the truth that was always there. The giver of life gave life to you. It's the only way that we can have a living relationship with God. Uh, a fourth name given to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, I don't suppose this is surprising, is, uh, in, is there in Romans 1, Paul refers to Him as the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is holy. He is perfectly holy, and uh, His purpose is to form for God a people who are holy. And so, this is the next great aspect of His work. He saved us, fine, good, great. But now, He comes to us as the Spirit of holiness who forms holiness in us. This is the next major part of His work, and uh, although in one sense all Christians can be said to be holy in the sense that they belong to God, and they are in that sense, in that proper sense of the word, saints or holy ones, um, that just means someone who belongs to God. Um, although that's true, the fact is that if we are ever to display holiness in our lives, that can ever happen because that can only ever happen because the spirit of holiness forms holiness in us. This is the work he loves to do. I guess that uh, many people assume that Christians, in the end, Christians are people who are trying really hard to be good. I think, I think it's fair to say, I think a lot of people out there would say Christians are people who just, you know, they, they want to try really hard to be good, um, which is a kind of double error, really, a double missing of the point. In the first place, it's not really about being good. It's about being God's. It's about belonging to God. And in the second place, it's not really about trying hard either. Yes, there is commitment and determination um, to the Christian life, but that's not what makes change possible. What makes it possible for us to grow in holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God's work in us. And I want to touch on two ways the Bible describes that work. Um, in evangelical circles, Reformed circles, um, we often emphasize what you might call, uh, what are sometimes called the forensic or legal aspects of, of, of salvation. We, we, we want to place great emphasis on the fact that we are justified by faith. That's absolutely at the heart of the gospel, and it is, and it's true. It's absolutely true. We are justified by faith. We are counted righteous in Christ. It's a courtroom image, a legal image. We are declared to be righteous forever um, because of what Christ has done for us. Sometimes the accusation is made that that's, it's quite a kind of cold and impersonal way to look at salvation, isn't it? You know, it's a declaration that's been made about you in a courtroom. Um, and I think that's a fair accusation if that's the only image that we have and the only teaching that we have. Uh, and the only picture that we have in our minds of what salvation is. But it certainly shouldn't be, because we need to place alongside that picture other pictures that the Bible gives us, more relational pictures. Through the gospel, God is reconciled to us. Enemies, 
he turns into friends. Through the gospel, we are adopted into the family of God. We who were, we who were children of evil become children of God, part of His family. And in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit, there are two deeply intimate and relational images that I want to to mention. The first is that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. This is a crucial, central biblical image. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. It's a key principle of the Christian life. You are united to Him. You are one with Him. And so, Galatians 2.20, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. It's an absolutely key text to, to, to transformation in the Christian life, to real change and growth and holiness. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. He is being formed in you. That's a relational picture. And secondly, and, and, and equally intimately, we're told in the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit indwells us. By His Spirit, God lives in every one of His people. Jesus was saying that to His disciples, wasn't He? I will go, I will ask the Father, He will send the Spirit, and, and because He sends the Spirit, I will be with you always. God Himself is, is with us. Christ Himself is with us. God lives in His people. I mean, we should… We should really fall off our chairs every time we hear that, shouldn't we? God. God lives in in me and in you. This is… Salvation is not just a, a, a legal reality some kind of fiction. It's a living reality. Why am, I why am I mentioning this? Because this is why there is hope for us to change, really genuinely change in our lives. This is why we don't have to live with, well, that sin has just got a hold of me, and I can never defeat it. No. No. God says no. The Holy Spirit says no. I will not leave you in this. There is reason for hope. You can change because the spirit of holiness is living in you. And the way uh, people like the Puritans long ago, the way they used to put it was that a new principle had been implanted in God's people that changes everything. It's the, the, the way that the Bible describes things like um, the, the, uh, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You get this kind of stark contrast, put off the old man, put on the new, all, all that kind of stuff. A, a new principle is implanted, and what's happening is that we, we come alive to the things of God. Holiness, which always seemed boring before and pointless, is revealed to us as all-surpassing and supremely desirable beauty. That's what holiness is. It's beauty. It's the beauty of God. And, and when men and women become holy, they reflect the beauty of God in their lives. Obedience to God, which used to be a burden to us, becomes our desire. We want to please Him. Everything changes. Things that previously captured my heart now seem empty and pointless 
Sins that once seemed normal and no big deal. Suddenly, we, these things stink to high heaven. The way I look upon God changes. The, the way I understand the world changes. The way I, the way I perceive myself changes. My understanding of who I am. It has, it has new roots and new depth. I'm a child of the living God. Indwelt by Him. Being renewed after His likeness. That is the core essence of who I now am by His grace. All of this is the work of the Spirit. It's all what we read in Romans 8 about being set free from what Paul calls the the law of sin and death, but we're set free by something he calls the law of the Spirit of life. And from this point, we walk not according to the flesh, leading to death. We, We set our minds not on the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. And as we do so, he says, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And it's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. It's who we are. Because it's who God has made us and is more and more making us. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And the sons of God are to look like their Father. And so by a new power within us, we're changed and we begin to display more and more uh, a life and character which Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's one of the astonishingly gracious things about the gospel that even the obedience of the Christian, listen to this, even the obedience of the Christian is God's gift to us before it is ever our gift to Him. It is His work in us by His Spirit. That's how gracious He is. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, there are several occasions in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And this is the the final aspect of His work that I want to to highlight. Um, He is the Spirit of Christ who glorifies Christ us. His work is not just in saving us, not just in sanctifying us or making us holy. He also equips and empowers the believer every day that Christ might be glorified in us. What happens there in John 14, 15, 16 is in a sense, is not immediately obvious from John 14, 15, 16. We need to, we need to, to step back a little bit and, and look a little bit more broadly and think about what's happened. The whole background here is that throughout Jesus' life, He has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit descended on Him in bodily form at His baptism. He was driven and guided and equipped and empowered by the Spirit. He was led in everything He said and did and thought by the Spirit. This happened throughout His entire life without one moment's interruption, not one nanosecond's interruption. 
Jesus is filled with the Spirit and lives the life of someone who has been filled with the Spirit. And for about three years, 12 men lived with him and walked with him and traveled with him and were with him day by day and saw this life. They saw the life that the Spirit of God produces in the man of God. And then he said to them, I am going away, but the same Holy Spirit who has lived in me and empowered me and done this work in me, I will send to you. The same Holy Spirit I will send to you to be with you and in you, to lead you and help you and encourage you and comfort you and provoke you and stir you up and push you on. He will be with you, and in Him I, in him I will be with you. And in this, in this way, although it will feel horrible to lose my bodily presence, the Holy Spirit will make the presence of God and the power of God available to you in a whole new way. He is, he says in chapter 14, he is a helper to be with you forever who dwells with you and will be in you. You will never be alone. You will never be powerless. You will never be apart from me. We need that, don't we? Do you not need that this week? The voice of God, you you are never alone. I am always with you. I'm God called alongside you. So it is that that God's Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son together, empowers us to live for Him. He reminds us of the gospel and points us to Christ. He assures us of our salvation, as we were thinking last week. He enables us to pray and sustains us in the weakness of our praying and, and sometimes cries to God on our behalf when we have no words to pray. He gives gifts to His people, not that we might argue over them or take pride in them, but that we might serve one another. He gives us strength to witness for Him in a world that rejects Him. In a thousand ways, the Spirit of Christ glorifies Christ through us. So this is who He is, all of this. This is why we believe in Him. This is what we believe in. The one who is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, of life, of holiness, the Spirit of Christ. We have known His work seen His work in the world and in the church and in us. And although there is much about Him that remains unknown to us, we know that our salvation depends on His gracious work in, in bringing the gospel to us, opening our hearts to receive it and applying it, just applying it to our hearts. This is for you. That's that moment. This, 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 all this stuff about Jesus and the cross, It's never made any sense to me until there's a moment. That was for me. It's the Holy Spirit. In affirming the creed, we are affirming all of this. I believe that He exists, that He's God, He's glorious, He's worthy of worship. He has given me life, united me to Christ, He indwells me. He will be with me day by day to make me holy and to empower me for all that God asks me to do. He unites me not only to Christ, but to all who are in Christ, to my brothers and sisters, 
giving me a spiritual unity with them and setting me to service alongside them. And as I look where he points me, as I follow the spotlight and and behold the glory of Christ himself, the Holy Spirit will fill me with joy and he will bear witness with my spirit that I really am a child of God, that I might know the joy of assurance and of confidence in the living God. That's what it means to say, as I hope we all can, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, our Father, we want to praise and honor you and your Son and your Spirit, our great triune God, for the glory of all that you are, for the measureless mercy in all that you have done for us, the breathtaking kindness with which you have treated sinful men and women. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for his glory and power, his beauty and perfection and majesty. Thank you for his work in the world throughout history, all that he has done, all his powerful actions. Thank you that, Father, we cannot conceive of what this world would look like apart from his influence. And so we give thanks for that. We thank you for his work in building the church and calling and sustaining your people of old. And then in in building your church and in giving gifts to your people uh, for your service and for uh, our service of one another. Thank you for his work in keeping God's people from sin and prompting holiness of thought and word and deed. Again, Father, we are conscious of so much that is not as it should be in in the church, but we shudder to think what it would be apart from his gracious work. Father, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We claim no credit for the faith which we profess because you gave it to us by your Spirit. He gave it to us to believe in you. And he filled us. And he united us to Christ. And he is forming Christ in us. And so we pray that by his work in us, you would wean us from our lingering taste for the things of this world and give to us instead an appetite for godliness, a desire for holiness, a growing love for all that is of you. Father, as we consider the, the work of your Spirit among us, we also want to pray that in grace and in mercy he would continue to tend to the needs of your people. Father, we need, we need him to be renewing faith within us continually. And so we pray for one another that for any who are struggling in this, that you would come and make us strong. Father, we need your spirit to empower our service in the church and to make it not grudging service, but glad service. We need your Spirit uh, giving us gifts that we might serve you and one another. And so do that, we pray, by him, by his power. Father, there are some of us who need special endurance amidst hardship. 
And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would draw near and would apply the truths of God to our lives, would assure us of our salvation, would remind us of your presence with us and your adequacy to all our need. Father, what a precious ministry this is. The Holy Spirit of God with us, alongside us, to help us each day. And so give us joy in Christ, even amidst opposition or suffering or hardship of one kind or another. Sustain your people, we pray. God, our Father, thank you for this Holy Spirit. May he have free reign in our lives. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.